One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Julian here from the Dublin Story Slam podcast. Before we begin the show, I want to tell you something very exciting. On May 27th, that's a Wednesday, we're going to be celebrating our third birthday online at a very special storytelling event via Zoom. You can register for free now by heading over to the DublinStorySlam.com and just click on the birthday link and then you will be treated to three wonderful true personal stories inspired by the theme Precious. And what's even nicer is that these stories come from three of our Grand Slam finalists for 2020. Head over to the DublinStorySlam.com for more information. And now here's the Dublin Story Slam podcast. Episode 28. Memories. Hi there and welcome to a very special episode of the Dublin Story Slam podcast. Because yes, as you may have just heard there from somebody, uh, we are three. And that got us thinking about what are some of our favourite memories and some of your favourite stories from the last three years of the Dublin Story Slam. Looking back on, on the stories and even just taking a look at some of the pictures and the images from the nights that we've recorded over the last while, it's quite emotional because, geez, you're just all so beautiful, squeezed into this beautiful space, the Sugar Club, and everybody is smiling and it's just so wonderful and, and, and intimate. And now, obviously, that's just a million miles away from where we are. But the one thing that has remained constant is the stories. And so as we've been harping on before, we really do think that these days, stories are some of the most precious things that you can share. So on this episode of the Dublin Story Slam, we're going to be sharing with you five stories. And those stories come from some of our listeners, uh, some of our audience members in the, at the live shows, and uh, one or two there from Column. O'Regan, who's of course our wonderful host, and myself. I'll be I'll be closing off with one of my favourite stories. We are going to begin today's episode with a story that was originally performed on the Abbey stage back in 2018, and it's the choice of Barbara Mogherly. So this is the winning story from the Dublin Story Grand Slam, 2018. And it comes from Kerry Ward. Ladies and gentlemen, to Kerry Ward. Kerry Ward, welcome Kerry to the stage. Hi, Kerry. 
2013, I was a contestant on Irish MasterChef, and it was one of the best and worst experiences of my entire life. Um, I have loved cooking since I was really young. One of my earliest memories is of standing on a kitchen chair in my nanny's kitchen and helping her make raspberry tarts and just feeling really warm and content and just happy. Now, I always loved food, but I didn't always have an easy relationship with food because I was overweight as a child and I was bullied relentlessly through primary school for being the fat kid and, you know, the nerdy kid and the tall kid and the asthmatic kid because, you know, children are monsters. <laughs> um, so that wasn't enough, even though that knocked my confidence. It never made me come away from food because no matter what was going on in my life, and this is true today, cooking, sharing food with people I love, like that always just brings me back to that same warm, content, happy place. So in 2013, I had just graduated from college and I honestly didn't know what I was going to do with my life, but I was spending a lot of time in the kitchen. When the MasterChef applications opened, I kind of looked at it and I thought, you know, sure, why not? And I applied without really ever expecting anything to happen. And a week later, I got a call to say that I was through to the first audition. And really, it all went downhill from there. <laughs> so for the first audition, I had to answer a bunch of questions over the phone. And the first question was, what do you make that you would consider to be high cuisine? Now, I was 22. I had never even eaten high cuisine. <laughs> So I just started making shit up. Like, I just started naming dishes I had heard of. And I discovered that if you put the word deconstructed in front of any restaurant dish, people think you know what you're talking about. So I should have been knocked out then. Instead, I was invited to the second round of auditions. For the second audition, I had to make a cold dish and bring it to the audition venue where the producer ate it, asked me a lot of questions, and filmed me at the same time. Now, I made a bay leaf panna cotta with Turkish spice figs. It was beautiful. Nobody can take that away from me. But on the way to the audition, it melted. So by the time I actually got there, it was just a puddle of cream. I really should have been knocked out then, but I got through to the final audition. For the final audition, I had to live cook in front of a team of camera people. I had never cooked on gas before, and while I was heating a huge vat of oil for my tempura, I set an entire roll of kitchen paper on fire. <laughs> Someone should have sent me home. Instead, I got a call to say, congratulations, you are going to be on MasterChef. So I arrived on the first day of filming at 6 a.m., sick with nerves, but really excited to get in there and start cooking. Little did I know that it would be a while because filming a single 30-minute episode of MasterChef takes 13 hours. It was six hours before I even set eyes on the judges, and that was six hours of putting my apron on, taking my apron off, walking into the kitchen, walking out of the kitchen, giving endless interviews. So six hours in, I found out what I was going to be making, and we were all going to be making our signature dish. My signature dish, salt caramel profiteroles, dark chocolate ganache, rosemary honeycomb, roasted pistachio creme anglaise. A dish I had never successfully made in the time limit. I had one hour. It started fine. 
It started fine, my profiteroles rose beautifully, my caramel was perfect, but it was the most distracting environment ever. There was literally a guy on a seven foot ladder in front of me, pointing a camera down at me. To my left, one of the girls was cooking with a live lobster and the camera crew were like obsessed with this. They kept poking it to make it do stuff. <laughs> she, when she tried to boil it, it jumped out of the pot. So I was there going, okay, okay, just pay attention, pay attention, and I got distracted. I looked away from my creme anglaise for two seconds, and bam, it was scrambled egg. At this point, I was running out of time. I had to fill my profiteroles, but they were still warm. Has anyone ever watched Bake Off? Do you know what happens when you do that? All of my filling split. At this point, I realized I was kind of in over my head. <laughs> But I had smiled all day, I had smiled through the whole process, and I kept smiling as I brought my dish up to the judges. And they looked at me, and they looked at each other, and they said, we will not be tasting that. <laughs> and I said, okay, thank you, and I brought my dish back to my bench. I thought, you know what, at least that's the worst of it over. But the producer cut filming, she said no. If you are going not to taste her dish, you have to give her an explicit reason. And one of the judges looked at me, and he said, hasn't the poor girl suffered enough? <laughs> and that absolutely broke me. It broke me. I had gotten through that whole day. I brought my dish up again. I had it rejected a second time, and I burst into tears. And the worst part was that all of the crying made it into the final episode. <laughs> the rest of the day is, is a bit of a blur. I don't need to tell you that I was eliminated. That was it. My MasterChef journey was over after one episode. And I have to tell you, I was young, and as I walked out of there, I felt absolutely crushed. Like, I felt like a failure. And it brought me back to that feeling of being a child in school and just burning up with shame and embarrassment and really feeling like I just wasn't good enough. And then I went and I got the bus home and while I was on my way home, I was struck by this thought and it was so powerful that it has stayed with me to this day. And that thought very simply was, I have some balls. <laughs> Walked in there, half the experience, half the age of all those other people, and with no fear, no reservations, no self-doubt, not knowing what I was doing, I gave it my all. And I can walk away from that with my head held high. And to this day, no job interview, no presentation, no story slam has ever made me feel like I couldn't do it. Because if I could do MasterChef, I can do anything. And I want to leave you with this, because two years after my episode aired, when, honestly, MasterChef was just an anecdote that I told people at parties, um, I got contacted by a magazine who were doing a piece on previous MasterChef contestants, and they wanted me to give an interview. <laughs> and a lot of the other interviews were about how successful the contestants had gone on to be and how they'd opened their own restaurants. Mine was not like that. <laughs> but I wanted to leave you with my last line of the interview, which, for me, really sums up the entire experience. And that is, my food is not beautiful. 
It is not professional. It is not high cuisine. But it is made with love and care. And for me, that is what cooking is really about. Thank you. That was Kerry Ward there, who I have showcased that story at, at many workshops. It's the one I love going to because the moment of, of clarity for, for Kerry comes not when she's kind of taking part in the competition. It kind of comes when all that has died down and she's reflecting back on her own achievements. And I just love the fact that that suddenly eclipses everything that's happened in that story. So a wonderful, wonderful story. And in a really nice way to start off our special episode. Our second story comes from another Grand Slam winner. And uh, I asked Colm, Colm who's the, the host of the show, um, to choose out a winner. And again, a near impossible task. But we both agreed on this one. This is a particularly brilliant, genius-like story from Catherine Brophy. Now, Catherine is our current Grand Slam champion. She took part in the Grand Slam back in 2019. But before then, uh, in February of that year, 2019, she got up and told this amazing nugget of a story that's just going to have you laughing from start to finish. And it's, um, the the well, okay, the theme was sex. And I think that, that says it all, really. So, this is Catherine Brophy. Yeah. I was 28 years of age before I lost my virginity. It wasn't through lack of desire. It wasn't through lack of opportunity. It was through lack of condoms. (laughs) Virginity in the female is supposed to indicate uh, virtue and innocence and so on and so forth. For me, it indicated terror. And I think it may have indicated terror for many other women of my generation, terror of getting pregnant. Um, I remember one time Oliver J. Flanagan stood up in the Doyle and announced to the nation that there was no sex in this country before television. And we all laughed. But there was a sense in which he was correct because, as several people have said tonight, Nobody ever spoke about sex at all. You never heard anything at all about it. Ireland was a very different country. Married women would talk in whispers behind closed doors about pregnancy and childbirth, okay, but not actually about who did what with which where and to whom. (laughs) Single women would make jokes or innuendos, but you never shared with your girlfriends what you had done or what had been done to you. Um, And the only sex education, as Bridget has just said, we were told that boys had urges. (laughs) No one ever explained what the urges were, nor did they suggest that we might have urges. But they did tell us that um, girls could be an occasion of sin for boys, and therefore it was our job to keep them, the urges, under control. Uh, which was a fine sort of way of saying if you get raped, it's your own fault. Anyway, I went off to college and I discovered that I did have urges. But due to the terror of getting pregnant, I kept my urges from the waist upwards, mostly. (laughs) (laughs) Because I knew if I got pregnant, I'd be thrown out of my family, where I was living at home at the time, 
I would certainly lose my job. I would probably have to go to England to have the baby adopted. And the best I could possibly hope for was a shotgun wedding. So um, I, became, I remained a virgin until I was 28, and then I met Pat. Pat was an Englishman, or sorry, he was an Irishman living in London, and he had come over to Dublin for the rugby. So it was around about this time of the year. And we met at a party, and he left me home, and we sucked the faces off one another. I had <laughs> beard, beard rash for days afterwards. He went back to London and he kept telephoning me and writing to me and telling me how wonderful I was. And that was incredibly flattering. So I fell madly in love with this man. And then he phoned and suggested that for some weekend, I think it was the Whit weekend, that we should go away for the weekend. That meant a dirty weekend. (laughs) That meant sex. Ooh, I didn't quite know what to do. I was all of a dither. So I had a conversation with my friend, Mairead, because I knew Mairead had done it. (laughs) With the deep sea diver. (laughs) And she said to me, you have to do it. You can't go back to God unopened, she said. And if you like, I'll lend you my new coat that I've just bought in London. She bought this beautiful tapestry coat with a hood that looked much better on me than it did on her. (laughs) So I told my parents that myself and Mairead were going down to Kinsale for some sort of um, an event for the weekend. And, you know, I'd be off and it'd be grand. So they were convinced I was going off with Mairead. And I got into my little Volkswagen, I drove out to Mairead, I got the lovely coat, and I went out to the airport, I picked up Pat, we went down to Wexford. I had, hadn't quite decided whether I would do it or not, but I had booked the hotel. And I had got the name of the doctor that would give you the pill with no questions asked. So anyway, we landed out of the hotel, the Ferry Carrick Hotel on the Slaney River, and it had um, one of those doors that go round and round. And we went in, and as you go in, the reception is on the right, right-hand side, or was then, and then there was a big lounge looking over the river. And as I walked through the door, who should I see drinking tea but my father and mother? Oh, fuck. (laughs) I went right round the door and out again. (laughs) And I was standing in the car park going, oh, Jesus, what do I do? Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, what do I do? What do I do? And then I remembered the coat. I knew they hadn't seen it. So I put on the coat, the tapestry coat, and pulled up the hood (laughs) and went through the door and sidled over, (laughs) pretending to look at the artwork (laughs) to where Pat was doing the signing of the register stuff. And I said, "Um, I'm just going to the toilet. And I sidled into the ladies' toilet. And I sat down in the cubicle. And they're like, what are they doing here? Why are they here? Why are they here? And then I remembered my father had said he wanted to go down to the Salty Islands to photograph the birds. Fuck. (laughs) 
So then I think, well, how long do I wait here? I mean, how do I, what's going to happen? And I decided, I'll write a little note to Pat. I'll give it to, I knew there was another woman there. I'd give it to her and ask her to give it to him. And he could check out my parents. And just as I was about to open the door, somebody came in. Yes, you're right. It was my mother. And she's, I could hear her talking to the other woman. I could hear her peeing. I could hear her flushing. I could, oh, she said, what am I going to do? Oh, my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And anyway, she eventually went out and said, OK, I'll write the little note. But the other woman had gone at this stage. I'm thinking, oh, what do I do now? So I, wait, I said, I'll wait now until somebody else comes in. The door opened. <laughs> and a voice said, Catherine? It was my mother. Oh God, oh what do I do? Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then I went, Is there anyone here called Catherine? I read, Oh, she doesn't realise it's me. So I put on my best fake American accent and said, <laughs> said, Yeah. <laughs> and she said, Your husband is outside. He's very worried about you. Are you all right? I said, Gee, I got a belly ache. <laughs> And off she went. And uh, then I was sitting there knowing, what am I going to do, what am I going to do, what am I going to do? And eventually, Pat opened the door and went, Catherine. And I told him what had happened. He thought it was hysterically funny. <laughs> I didn't. But anyway, he checked and they had gone. My parents had gone. So we went to, up to the room. We went to bed. We had sex. It was lovely. We spent the entire weekend having as much sex as is humanly possible between two people. And I learned something very interesting. I was not in love. He was grand in the bed. (laughs) But he was bloody boring otherwise. I'm very grateful to him for making the first experience very pleasant indeed. And I've never looked back since. Thank you. That was Catherine Brophy there with a special story handpicked by Colm O'Regan, our wonderful host. Colm, of course, will be hosting our birthday on Wednesday, May 27th. And uh, if you haven't seen him in action, he is like the, one of the, the pillars that holds the whole show up. So uh, if you want to come along and see Colm interact and, and, and be incredibly funny at the same time, then head over to the DublinStorySlam.com and get your free ticket uh, for our birthday show. Uh, okay, on to our next storyteller. So this story was chosen by one of this Wednesday's storytellers. His name is Pranav Darshan. So we asked him to choose out one and he went for oh, one that I have to say I would probably also have gone for. There's just so many emotional sucker punches in this particular story that just really stay with you. And it's it's very emotional. I remember hearing this when my daughter was probably about, about the same age as the, as, as the child in this story and nearly welling up on stage. So don't worry, it has a happy ending, okay, but it's definitely worth sticking for the uh, emotional roller coaster. This is an incredible story from Alana Monks. I can't believe I'm last. I'm mortified. <laughs> anyway, so um, if there's any mothers in the audience, I'm sure you'll all know that pregnancy is the first taste of 
that maternal panic you carry with you your entire life. And my first real experience of that was the night that my daughter almost died. Um, it was October 2013, and Alice had just turned one. I was 24, and I was still adjusting to motherhood, as any 24-year-old does, because you're handled this helpless little bundle and told to take care of it when you're in the middle of your helpless early 20s. And it's, it's, it's pretty hard. But anyway, and so on the night in question, my husband was away all day at an Ireland international okay, soccer match. Alana Monks. And I actually recently asked him for the purpose of, of this story. I was like, do you remember who you're playing? Because it's, it's who we were playing, Russia. rather. Because um, it's one memory I don't have of the night. And he said he actually didn't remember, but he remembers we lost. And I was like, wow, that really narrows it down. <laughs> you know? So while he was away, I planned to have my um, good friend Sinead over. And we were going to have some food and some drinks and, you know, put Alice to bed and get on with, you know, our early middle-aged kind of life (laughs) and um, so I made dinner and I spent all day prepping for it Um, I'm not a natural cook by any stretch of the imagination in fact my husband regularly reminds me that for the first six months of our relationship he got quite used to the taste of raw sausage (laughs) and so but at the time (laughs) honestly that bad that bad like his his taste buds were burned from salt and um, so anyway, I was, um, at the time, I was a stay-at-home mom, and raised in the generation of, you know, kind of uh, really white feminism, where it's like, you know, you're either out there ruling the world, or, you know, you're not really doing enough. So I was a stay-at-home mom, and I was really, really, really uncomfortable with that idea, so I, you know, kept trying to prove that I was something more than that, you know, I was, I was really gaining skills at home, so instead I became, you know, the typical bored housewife. So I became, like, really good at crafting. And I always had a fresh flower arrangement ready to go. And, you know, I, God love me, I tried to write a novel. Like, it's just such a cliche. Um, and I also became, like, a really extra cook, you know. So this day, I spent all day sautéing my prawns and marinating the vegetables and you know, doing all that sort of stuff. And, like, I was pawning Alice off with chocolate and YouTube videos and all the new millennial ways of parenting. And um, so she just got no attention from me because I was busy becoming MasterChef. And so, in fairness, I did make possibly the best meal that I've ever cooked. Like, I made this, this sounds, like, it sounds lame now, but, like, if you like Thai food, you'll get it. So, um, it was coconut tempura prawn on a bed of rainbow rice with a side of homemade satay sauce. Yeah, you guys get it. (laughs) And so, anyway, I um, made the dinner and served it to my friend with um, a few glasses of wine, white, of course, because that paired with fish, and that's another bored housewife's hobby, is knowing about wine. And so we sat down, and we had a couple of spoonfuls. And next thing you know, Alice comes half crawling, half walking, in that awkward toddler stage out of the sitting room and looking for her mammy, and arms up, and she's you know, looking at me because she pretty much hasn't seen me all day because I've spent the day ignoring her. Like, she's looking for her mammy who spends the day pretending not to be a mammy. And I pick her up, and I try to eat around my food, like, you know, kind of reaching in this way and that, and make some stupid joke about, he'll never eat alone once you have kids. And <laughs> next thing you know, her hands are straight in the food. She's, like, digging in there, and that's the end of my meal. I can't, I can't eat anymore. And it's not because I don't know what she has on her hands. Like, it could be anything. It could be poo at this hour. I don't know. But, um, no, she's digging in, and... As soon as her hands go in the food, she's got this little hive just right in the middle of her forehead. And I turned around to Sinead and I said, 
sat there a second ago, did she come up her head or something? And Sinead's like, I don't know, I didn't notice. And as we're looking at her, her face just erupts. And it's hives everywhere. And we're wondering, and we're like, oh, God, what's going on? And I look at her hand, and it's covered in satay sauce. And she's never had nuts before. And so anyway, then my heart sinks, but also quickens to the pace of an attack. And I freak out. And I'm straight away on the phone to the D-Doc. And I'm saying, you know, what will I do? What will I do? And I remember words like anaphylaxis, hurry, time, emergency room. And I throw her in the car, and I'm gone. I'm gone for Tempo Street. I leave Portionade to clean up my mess. And I'm on the road, and I'm going through my memories of what I know about anaphylaxis, and that poor girl who died on O'Connor Street had just happened. And I'm thinking, shit, like, I don't have time here, and I don't have any idea what I'm doing. And so I call my husband, and he's post-matched somewhere in a bar, and he doesn't hear his phone. And so I'm screaming profanities into his voicemail. And, you know, God love him. He's been so good never to listen to those. (laughs) And so instead, I'm looking back at Alice. And I'm like, you okay, baby? You got to stay awake. And she's swollen to the point that I don't recognize her. And her head has some forward under the weight. And I can see that she doesn't have the energy to pick it up. And I'm thinking, this real panic sets in. And it's like an elastic band has just worn itself so tight around my stomach and my intestines have just expelled from my arse. (laughs) But it sets in that fight or flight kind of feeling like, you know, the time has stood still, what am I going to do? And so I pull over at the side of the motorway. This is, I live in the middle of fucking nowhere and this is how I pull over at the side of the motorway on the way into town and um, I, I ripped her out of her seat and I brought her into the front, and I'm shaking her, and I'm, sh- I'm screaming at her that she has to stay awake, and she's not. She's not waking up. And so instead, I call 999, and I scream at them for a while instead. And it's about seven and a half minutes, I think, I, from what I remember on the phone. I'm seven and a half minutes waiting, and the, the 999 um, operator was very good, and he stayed on the phone with me. And, you know, I was in no mood for a chat, like, but, you know, he, he did anyway. And so then the fire brigade arrived. They arrived first. And I don't, everything from that point on is this really kind of discordant, fuzzy memory. It's like it's been filmed from underwater. And I see the firemen coming in front of me, and I'm on the motorway, and my car is shaking from the trucks, and the car is passing by. And I see them coming, and it's a flashing blue light, and I can see their fire suits, and they're illuminated, and they're coming kind of from all angles. And next thing you know, I'm holding my barely conscious child, and I can hear her gasping. And the fireman comes in on the passenger door, and he comes in, and he grabs her fat little thigh, and he stabs her. And in that nanosecond, I was brought back to the operating theater where she was born, where she was ripped from my belly in the middle of a nap, and this silence in the room as everyone is waiting for that first scream of life to say that everything is okay. And after he stabs her, the adrenaline hits her system and she cries. And I've never been so happy to hear her cry. And I cry too, obviously. And so when everything had calmed down and we had gotten off off the motorway, the fireman who stabbed her, that sounds terrible, but... (laughs) The fireman who stabbed her turned around to me and said, you know, you saved her life. And I don't know whether that's a genuine fact or just a paramedic trying to calm down a hysterical mother. 
But I did find out later that from the point of calling the GP and the fireman stabbing Alice in the leg was just under 20 minutes and death from anaphylaxis can occur in under 30. So I don't know. I don't like to say that I saved Alice's life because the thing about being a mother is that your child's life is your life. You know, and I'm done pretending that I'm more than a mother. I'm done because I am, and that's, that's who I am. I'm a mother, and I'm, I'm proud to be a mother. And, you know, if I want to do that for the rest of my life, and if, if I, well, I'm back at work, but, you know, whatever. But <laughs> if I never did, who cares? I'm a mother, and that's, that's an important job. And why should we shame women for staying at home? It's their choice, and it's a great choice. And why wouldn't you? And everyone who is a stay-at-home parent knows that if you've gotten through the day without throwing your child in the bin, then you've done a great job. You know? So I don't like to say I saved Alice's life because in those moments I was totally selfish thinking she has to make it through this because I can't live without her. So if there's one thing that maternal panic has taught me, it's that you feel far more strongly for your children than you could ever feel for yourself, but also that those two things are one and the same. Wow, Alana Monks, ladies and gentlemen. Oh. Wow. I, uh, I want to ring home now, make sure everything's okay. <laughs> Jesus, that was incredible. Every... Even, um, do you know even stuff like being, you know, every, you ever have occasion to be stop, stopped on the side of the motorway? It's the most heartless place in the world, isn't it? Because the world is going past you. Everything got just broken down. And, and that shaking, as uh, Alana described, of the traffic, everybody just going about their business, and you're stuck in whatever. So you're not stuck in the motorway for a good reason, you know. So that's, wow, that was incredible. Thank you very much, uh, Alana That Monks. was uh, Alana Monks there with a story that left our host, Mr. Colm O'Regan, um, quite quite shaken as well after he had heard it. Colm was also the father of a, a very uh, young uh, baby at the time as well. So I think between the pair of us, we were just completely in bits uh, on stage after Alana told that story. So um, a really, really beautiful story with a very happy ending. Alana now has her own interior design company and you can find more information at the abode stylist.com and um, if you go over to her instagram you can you can see some pictures of her two beautiful daughters uh, who look very 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 healthy and um, very 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 happy okay now for something completely different after alana's really moving story uh, this comes recommended to us by one of our instagram followers jenny mika and jenny's story was the one from Joe Whelan. And the theme of the night was holiday. But for this particular story, the biggest thing to happen to Joe wasn't what happened in the holiday, but what happened afterwards. Joe Whelan. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. They say females are the fairer sex. And if that's the case, then males have got to be the fair, stupid sex. <laughs> As I can testify from a trip I took to um, Spain a few years ago, a good few years ago, um, I had the opportunity to go on this golfing holiday with a few guys that wouldn't have been my normal mates as such, and uh, just ended up going with, anyway. And uh, I'm the kind of guy who, say, if, if I was going on, on a holiday like to Spain, I would always try and use a couple of phrases of Spanish you know, when you're at a restaurant and you want the, the menu or order a drink, you know, you try and... I always try to speak a few words of Spanish. Whereas the guys I was with, their sole communication um, was like, say, if you say it slowly and loudly, <laughs> they'll understand you. Can I wait? Five pints. Five, five pints to San Miguel there, Tom. And, uh, so, whereas I always try to, you know, use a few words of Spanish. So, in the hotel we were staying in, there was this beautiful receptionist called um, Anita. And I thought it was the perfect chance for me to use my few kublafuckle of Spanish. Uh, so, um, every morning I, I'd come down and I'd say, Buenos dias, Anita, como, como estas? You know, and she would kind of probably roll her eyes and say, yeah, you know, she would acknowledge me, you know. And, of course, the lads were kind of impressed, you know. Just this lad knows a bit of Spanish, like, you know. <laughs> and um, so it was great. And, you know, the holiday went well. We played a lot of golf. And uh, um, I'd come in the evening and I might throw a couple of more Spanish words at Anita and, you know, asking for the key to the room or whatever, you know. So it went well. <clears throat> so when it was time to go home, I was at the airport, and um, I realized I left my phone back at the hotel, in, my, in, in, in the room in the hotel. And then, as in now, like, you know, you're lost without your phone, and all my numbers, I was self-employed, all my numbers were on it, and I said, shit, like, you know. So I borrowed one of the lads' phone, and I said, look, um, 
I rang the hotel and I said, listen, uh, hi, I said, I'm with that golfing party that were there from Ireland, you know. I said, I'm after leaving my phone in my, in my room, you know. And of course, this familiar voice came on the phone. He said, I said, hi, I remember you. And it was Anita, of course, you know. And she said, uh, and I said, look, I'm very sorry, I left my phone. And is there any way you could post it on to me? And I'll gladly pay the postage. And she said, no problem, you know, we'll send it on, you know. So that was great. So we arrived back home, and, and uh, I'm um, at home, and, and about a week later, my wife Madeline calls, you know, uh, into the job that I was working on. She said, look, your phone arrived. I opened uh, the package because I was going to bring in the phone to you, you know, but it's completely flat, so I stuck it on charge. It's at home. And I said, brilliant. I, I'll, I'll go out in about an hour, and I'll, I'll check it, you know, and I'll, I'll take it to work, because I was saying there must be loads of people calling me and so on, you know. So um, I go home anyway, and uh, about an hour later, and like the phones at that time were about the size of a cigarette box, you know, and uh, it was quite small. So um, I go home, and, and there's this big box on the table that's like a, a six-pack of wine, you know, and uh, I was kind of going, Jesus, that's, that's big. Now, the phone was charging away, you know, so I, um, I opened the box, which was already opened, and uh, I realized, like, there's a pair of shoes in there belong to me a t-shirt, a pair of shorts, you know, <laughs> and I'm going, fuck it, what else did I forget, you know, and uh, so um, then there's this letter in there, you see, from the hotel, and it's, of course, it's from Anita, and um, so I, I read the letter, you know, and it says, hi, Joe, enclosed is your phone, and your shoes, and your shorts, and, you know, um, your t-shirts, you know, and, uh, and then she said, uh, you might forget your head only for it is on you, you know, <laughs> laughing, you know. It uh, sounds like something your mother would have said, you know. So, um, and then she kind of finished the letter and she said, I really enjoyed speaking with you all the week, you know. It was such fun. You're such a gentleman. And she said, I just want to send a big kiss to my Irish man, you know. And I kind of go, oh, fuck, you know. Uh, and, I, and I kind of, the, my first thought is like, wow, some Spanish... <laughs> You know, as I said, the fair stupid sex, like, some Spanish girl is actually wants to, you know, send a kiss to me, you know, and of course, terror then came over me, and I said, like, the box was open, my, my, my wife must have seen this letter, you know, and I'm kind of going, oh, shit, you know, and then I said, maybe she just took out the phone, left it down, and, you know, didn't really look through the box, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, um, so, I, uh, you know, I kind of, you know, say, yeah, I think, you know, that's okay. So I, I, I started taking out the stuff out of the, the, out of the rest of the stuff out of the box, the shoes, the shorts, and so on, you know. And down at the very end of the box, under everything, you know, is possibly the most beautiful pair of white ladies' underwear I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and I, 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 I picked them up, like, and I fucking, holy shit, like, you know, and I, <laughs> I like, again, like, the two parts of the man, like, uh, one part is kind of going, fucking hell, it's good. a girl spent me her knickers, you know? <laughs> and I was kind of just blown away by this, you know? But of course, the sensible guy is going, Madeline has just opened this box, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I'm kind of going, yeah, but like, she would have freaked, I'd be dead now, you know what I mean? She's seen these, you know? So I'm kind of going, she couldn't have seen them, you know? So I kind of, um, I, I kind of theorized that, like, she mustn't have seen them, you know? So... I did what any man would do in that situation is I put them in my pocket and I said, I have to tell the lad. 
I, I just got to tell the lads this story because they just won't believe me, you know. So, um, <laughs> I, I kind of get ready to go back into town anyway, you know, in, in Clonmel, and, and uh, just as I'm going out the door, um, my wife pulls in in the car, you know. So I said, okay, just, just, just you know, be cool here, you know. <laughs> I, think, I think we got this, you know. So, uh, so she comes in and she says, um, oh, did you get your phone? I said, yeah, 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 did. thanks, 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 you know. And, and she said, um, what else was in the box? It's huge, like, you know. And I said, uh, yeah, my shoes and shorts and stuff. I, I left a load of stuff there, you know. And um, she said, and, you know, and I'm kind of gauging her reply, you know, and I'm kind of going, I don't think she knows, you know. And then um, she says, like, and this kills me, and she says, is there anything else in the box, you know? And I go, fuck it, she knows, you know. And, and, I, and I, I, I kind of do again like any man would in that situation. I, kind of, I just wilt, you know, and I, and I kind of go, look, it's, it's, it's not what you think. Like, I mean, I, 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 I'm making excuses and I did nothing wrong, you know. And, I, and, I, and like she just kind of leans over and she puts her arm around me and she puts her hand to my lip, you know, and she says, the letter is from her, she says. The knickers are mine. That was Joe Whelan there, as chosen by Jenny Mika. Thanks a million, Jenny. Our final story of the podcast comes from one of my personal favourites and it was told at our very first Christmas show but it felt like a little gift so we thought it was a really wonderful way to share a story way back from from the beginning back when we were only um, let's see six months old I think at the, at the time and um, we really hope you enjoy it and have enjoyed all of these stories this is Martin Hughes Keep it going for Martin as he makes his way up. Thank you, Martin. Good evening. So, as of this moment, less than 10 people have heard the story, or of this story, and only three people have actually heard the story completely. Um, the reason I'm telling it tonight is um, it fits with the theme, basically. <laughs> and uh, no one has ever saved me so oh I thank you um, so of the many jobs I've had over the years uh, about 10 years ago I did a brief stint as a taxi driver I had this 8 seater minibus and um, I used to ferry people back and forward to pubs and I was doing that very thing one night in November there was snow on the ground frosty white stuff everywhere and I had a bunch of girls in the car and um, I was dropping them off to a housing estate in Lusk. And on the way into the estate, I noticed a car parked on the side of the road with the engine running. And I kind of went, there didn't seem to be anybody in the car, so I didn't put, pay much pass to it. And um, I might lighten this story a little bit, because it is a serious story, but I think we have enough sad and serious stuff in our lives. So there might be some light ads in here somewhere as well. So um, anyway, I dropped the girls off. Um, it took a few minutes because they were like, oh my God, you're so handsome. And I was like, oh God. <laughs> um, 
I'm, I'm old enough to be your fa- f- cousin, older cousin. And, uh, on, the, uh, on the way back out, um, the car was still there and the engine was running. You can see the fumes, you know, in the wintertime, you can see the fumes coming up and so on. So uh, I pulled up beside the car to have a look and I noticed a hose in the exhaust pipe. And uh, I jumped out heroically, you know, as you do. And uh, I pulled the hose from out of the car and I went around to the driver's door and I, I opened the door and there was a young man slumped on the seat. Uh, he appeared to be unconscious. So I took him out of the car, put him on the ground. Uh, I checked him over. Uh, he was breathing. He had a pulse. He was kind of fading a little bit, but he was there. So uh, I rang an ambulance and the ambulance was duly dispatched and I waited with the, the young man. He was only like 20, just a baby, you know. And um, I noticed his phone on the ground and he had the beginnings of a text message to his dad. And at that moment I decided that I would ring his dad. And the reason I decided to do that was I come from a very large family of 11 people in our family, 11 children in our family, and we had a couple of accidents over the years. And my dad used to say... Uh, if you're not coming home, if you're out flying your flag, uh, you know, ring home and tell us you're not coming because your mum's going to stay up all night worrying otherwise. You know, and uh, we've had the guards come to our house a couple of times and it's an awful experience. So for that reason, I decided to ring his dad, uh, which I did, and I explained the situation. And I said, look, your son's here. He's, he's, he's unconscious, but he's fine. The ambulance is coming. So he arrived down about the same time as the ambulance arrived. And... Uh, they took over, they took him off in the ambulance, the dad went with him, he shook my hand, said thanks very much. You know, I put my cape and red underwear back in the boot and <laughs> headed off home. Uh, I wasn't actually the better for it, so I, I kind of went home. I, I sort of had enough now, that's enough for anyone to see for one evening. So the next afternoon, uh, the dad rang me and he said, the, the young man has woken and uh, he's... He's fine, and they're going to keep him over overnight again for, for observation and stuff. And he asked if he could bring the young man down to me to say thanks. And I said, I'd rather you didn't, because um, I don't want you coming back in a little while and telling me that he successfully managed to kill himself. Um, also, I was kind of the bad guy here, because I stopped him from doing what he wanted to do. So it could all go badly wrong. So I said, look, you know what? Just look after him. Keep an eye on him. And, uh, you know, farewell and good luck. And so so that was November. Um, a few days before Christmas, I got a text message from the dad saying, I know you don't want us to contact you, but I'm thinking of you today. Merry Christmas all as well. And I replied, Merry Christmas. That's fine. And I got the same text message for the next four years. Every Christmas, a few days before Christmas, uh, thinking of you, Merry Christmas all as well. On the fifth year... I didn't get any text message. And my wife said to me, did you get your annual text message from you know, that guy? And I went, no, I didn't. And I've just realized now that I'm quite concerned about not getting the text message that I didn't want in the first place. <laughs> uh, so in the first week in January, uh, I got a text message from the dad saying, belated, Merry Christmas. Uh, thanks for that. You know, uh, um, we were away uh, and, uh, so we were away in, in Spain because the young man had gotten engaged and uh, they decided to go on a family holiday in Spain 
And at that time, as you might remember, um, to send a text message or phone from abroad was so expensive you'd have to sell a kidney to pay for it when you, when you came back home. So that was the reason he didn't send a message. And I was like, fuck, I was up all night. Like, you know what I mean? Like, uh, so uh, I said, right, okay, it's fine. Thanks very much. Uh, I'm, I'm glad everything's okay. So um, every year since that, um, I get a text message a few days before Christmas from the dad saying, uh, thinking of you today, Merry Christmas, all is well. Yeah. And can I just like to say before, take this home with you this evening, it, it's okay to not be okay. Thank you very much. That was Martin Hughes there. And the lovely thing about it is that Martin still, to this day, gets his little text message every year from the family saying that everything is okay. So it's a kind of story that we all need, you know, just checking in with each other and saying, are you okay? And so if you haven't spoken to somebody maybe in a while, maybe maybe give them a little text message and, and see how they're doing because it can make all the world of difference, as you heard from Martin's story. So that brings us to the close of this uh, special podcast episode where where we've been looking back on some of your favourite stories from the last three years. It's hard to believe that it's three, but we are now entering year four. Year three has been amazing, but I think year four, year five, year six, sure, Jesus, we're only out of the nappies and and, and really walking on our own two feet. So I think uh, we've got a long way to go yet. Thanks a million for listening, and we'll talk to you on the next episode of the Dublin Story Slam podcast. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 